Dennis Kinlaw was a professor of Old Testament history, theology, and languages. He had the ability to make the Word of God come alive, and we believe wholeheartedly in the power of God's Word to change lives through the Holy Spirit. We hope this message will quicken your interest in God's redemptive story. If you have a testament, turn with me. The Gospel according to Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 27 of that chapter. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he charged them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And when he had called the people to him and his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Will you pray with me? Now, Father, the great need of our hearts is not the wisdom of any man. It is, it is you and you alone. You, your Son, and your Spirit. So we ask you that tonight, very quickly, you would make us conscious that we are in your presence and that you have a word for us. Somehow, let behind, through, if possible, but maybe in spite of the human voice, let the divine voice come to every one of our hearts tonight, and we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, I began, we began with a personal word. The basic thrust of what I wanted to say this morning could be summed up in the fact that while I was in college, I came to the place where I realized there were Christians and then there were Christians. There were Christians of one order and then there were Christians of a different order. And that different order, I found, was one that made me very uncomfortable because there was something about their commitment that had a totality about it. And there was something about the total commitment that they had made to Christ that had an irrevocability about it, that when I heard them witness and sensed the power of those claims, I knew that for me to be like them, meant I had to lose control of my life and give the control of my life to our Lord. And at that point, I found fear. 
I found a certain terror within me. And I found, as we said this morning, I found a recalcitrance within me. Now, uh, as I thought about that and faced that, why is it that I should fear the will of God? It obviously is because I do not trust him. Because if I trusted him, I would not be afraid of him. And if I do not trust a God who is good and who is loving and who has manifested his essential character in the cross of Christ, in the life of Christ and in the cross of Christ, then I think that recalcitrance within me, I think it is safe to call it sin. It may not be an act. It may be simply an attitude or a disposition. But it is a commitment deep within. I'm afraid of him. And I am afraid to turn myself totally into his hand. A friend of mine said to me, you know, I understand that because when I prayed, Lord, I want to give you my whole life, I said, please be good to me. And I suspect most of us who have walked with God can vibrate with that. Now, uh, what I found was that I had a divided heart because I was a believer. There was a genuine love in my heart for Christ and I longed to follow him. There was something within me that knew that it was right and it is hard for any rational person to go counter to what he knows to be right. And yet there was something within me that was afraid to follow the leading which God had for me. Now, as I said this morning, I found that I was not unique, that there were a lot of other people who'd gone through the same thing. And that there were some people who said, well, this is the best you can do in this life. You're going to have to struggle with that vision within all your days. But there were some people who said, I fought that battle, and through the very grace of Christ, through that grace that comes from Calvary's cross, I found deliverance from that division within me and found that he could put my heart together in a single, in a single direction, and that direction should, could be Christ. And the person said, I found I could safely take my hands off my life, turn loose, and let him have it, and let him do with it what he pleased, and that it was safe for me to trust him that way. Now, as I wrestled with that, I thought, what does the scripture say about this? Is this biblical? Is there a biblical pattern for us? Now, I don't know about anybody else, but I found myself turning to the gospel. Because in the gospels, we get a picture of Jesus calling people to follow him. And his public ministry, it's not possible for us to declare with any absoluteness how long it was, but the traditional view is that it was three to three and a half years. At least it was long enough for us to get a significant picture of a group of people turning and following him at great personal cost to themselves. If you think of all the stories that are told in the Gospels and know that we do not have the full story, they spent a significant amount of time with Jesus. And so if you will turn to the Gospels, you will find that they tell us about men who came and followed Christ and ultimately gave their lives for Christ as martyrs or as witnesses for him. Now, where do you get the story clearest? I don't know about anybody else, but the place where it comes clearest for me is in the Gospel of Mark. Now, it may be that I like that because it's the shortest one. <laughs> and I can get through it fastest, and I can hold it in my mind more easily than Matthew or Luke. But uh, nevertheless, regardless, there is a magnificent pattern laid down in the Gospel of Mark. And I'd just like to talk to you about that gospel. 
It is the greatest story, the most important story ever told. And we should never get tired of looking at it, living in it, dwelling on it, meditating and seeing the great truths that are there. Now, if you will read the Gospel of Mark, you will find that Mark teaches it differently from the way we tend to teach. You know, we want logical, de logically developed arguments, sort of in syllogistic fashion, rationally presented. Now, you won't find that in the Gospel of Mark. Mark was a Hebrew, at least he was under a Hebrew influence, and he was an heir to the Old Testament, and his way of teaching was a much more powerful way than simply logic. It was by story. And I can remember when I first began to get acquainted with the Gospel of Mark, I thought, well, heaven's sake, there's nothing but a succession of stories. That's right. But as I've lived with those stories, I've found that Mark has a distinct plan in mind, and every story fits into the picture that he wants to, to paint, and every story carries a certain amount of weight in demonstrating the truth he wants to get to us. Now, if you take the Gospel of Mark, you can split it very easily into two sections. And the passage that we read this morning and tonight is the middle point. It's the crux. It's the pivotal point. And everything that comes before it is one. And everything that comes after it, you can take as either one section or split it into two. Because what you have is the ministry of Jesus coming up to Caesarea Philippi in this passage and then Jesus turns and heads to Jerusalem, and that takes chapters 9 and 10, and when you get to the beginning of chapter 11, you have the last week of Jesus' life in Jerusalem. But now what about those first eight chapters when Jesus is calling men to follow him? It is a remarkable succession of stories. And the funny thing is, or the interesting thing is, every one of the stories is about Jesus. And every one of the stories is about Jesus in the presence of some human need. We don't have time to go through them all tonight, but let me just get, take, say, five, the first five that are given as selective to illustrate that. You will remember that after John the Baptist introduced him to Israel and said, here he is, he's the Christ, you will remember that Jesus was tempted by the devil and then he went to Capernaum, which he made the center of his ministry. For the, rest of his, for the rest of the time that he was here. He'd make periodic trips to Jerusalem, but his ministry centered around Capernaum. And so he went into the synagogue on Capernaum, and they gave him the biblical text, and he began to teach. Read, and he began to teach. And as he taught, now I'm going to give you my version of this. It's a little bit different than Mark's, but basically this is what I think happened. As he teaches Andrew and Peter in the crowd. And Andy nudged Peter and said, Peter, did you ever hear anything like that? And Peter looked back and said, Andy, man, I surely never did. And Andy said, what's so different about him? Peter said, why, he makes sense. How long since you heard a preacher that made sense? They said, how is it that he talks like that and we understand he makes sense? And our preachers, man, what a difference. Now, did you, did you know that's one way that Mark has of teaching you and me that he is the truth? You get in John, and John says it very differently. But do you know everybody in the world looking for truth? Do you know anything more important than truth, more than anything else that you need? You need to know truth so that that's the way, the only way of life. So the first thing is he speaks, and they say, make sense. While he's talking, there's a commotion in the crowd because there's a man in the midst 
who has an evil spirit within him, and he disturbs the service. And as he disturbs the service, Jesus turns and looks at him and rebukes the evil spirit and casts him out, and the man's as calm and as can be and is an appropriate part of that worship service. At that point, Peter jammed Andy and said, Andy, did you see that? And Andy said, I sure did. And Peter said, you know, he took the devil right out of that guy, didn't he? And Andy said, he surely did. Peter looked back and said, Andy, you reckon he could take the devil out of me? Because there's no mature person who's ever lived who hasn't known that he had evil in his heart. And if it doesn't manifest itself, there are none of us that are exempted. We know the potential is there. The longer you live, the more you will realize that potential. Peter said, man, let's ask him home for lunch. So they took him home for lunch, and when they got home, they found that Peter's mother-in-law was sick. And so Jesus said, where is she? And he goes in, lays his hands on her, and heals her. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but uh, I think what you've got is, Mark is saying he's the truth, and he is the victor over evil, and he can deliver you from your sin and your evil and set you free, and he was saying, Mark was saying, he's the creator. He made the body. He doesn't have any problems correcting its problems and healing. And then he walked out and bumped into a leper. And the leper came up to him, knelt in front of him, looked up at him and said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus amazingly reached out and put his hand on his head in spite of the fact that a Jew believed that if he touched a leper, he'd be defiled laid his hand on his head and said, Son, you're clean. You can go on your way. Now, that's a magnificent story because uh, I remember when that first began to come home to me and I thought, wonder where Peter was when he saw that leper get that close to him and then Jesus lay his hand on his leper's head. Peter, you know, was a good Jew and believed that that would be defiling. So I suspect, you know, the Jew believed that if the wind blew across a leper and then blew across you, you were defiled. And you needed to go find a priest to baptize you to get you clean so you could go back to ordinary society. And here Jesus lets him get so close he has to look up to see him close enough he can lay his hand on his head and then he lays his hand on his head. You know, I suspect Peter was as far away as he could get and still see what was going on, curious old soul that he was. And I imagine he was saying, Master, you've ruined everything. We had plans for today. What are we going to do now? We've got to take you to a priest and get you clean. And Jesus looked over and said, Peter, come here. And Peter says, well, Master, if I get close to you, I'll get defiled. Jesus said, Peter, come here. I wonder if when Peter got to him, he reached out and put the hand he'd had on the leper and put it on the bare arm of Peter and pulled him in real close. And while Peter was having conniptions, he says, Peter, you don't think there's anything in that guy that can defile me, do you? No, there's something in me that can cleanse him and it can restore him. He looked down at the leper and said, Son, you can go home and eat supper with your family tonight. You don't have to live out in the wilderness. You can go back to work. You can sleep in the same bed with your wife tonight. You can go back to work in the morning where you used to work. And next Saturday, you can go to synagogue and worship God again because you're clean and you've been restored. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we would let Christ send fathers home to their children, husbands home to their wives, broken families back to each other? Jesus established there that he's the reconciler. He can restore people. He can restore broken relationships. 
And then you remember the paralytic that four fellows brought to him, and when they brought him, they couldn't get to him, so they climbed upon the roof, and they lowered him right down through the roof. And as they did, when he got down at eye level, Jesus looked at the man and said, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisee over against the wall jabbed his neighbor Pharisee and said apoplectically, what did he say? And the second Pharisee said, I thought he said his sins are forgiven. And the first Pharisee said, uh, who does he think he is? That's what I thought he said too. Nobody can forgive sins but God and God alone. And I suspected that minute Jesus looked over and got that apoplectic Pharisee's eye and winked a big wink and said, that's right, boys, you're catching on. Because you see, every story in the first half of the book of Mark is a story about Jesus, and the implicit in every story is the question, who is this guy? Do you remember when he stopped the storm, they said, what manner of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. Every one of these stories has implicit within it that question, who is he that he can do these things? And the funny thing is, the appropriate thing is that in the gospel of Mark, everybody had an answer, except the disciples. If you'll go through the Gospel of Mark, you'll find that his family said, we know what the problem is, he's lost his marble. we got to go get him and bring him home. Now, you will remember that the temple said, we know what, what, what's wrong with him, he's got the devil in him, he's got Beelzebub in him. That's where he gets his power. You'll remember the people of Nazareth said, man, he's from Wilmore, don't pay any attention to him. And you will remember that Herod said, I think I know who he is. I'm afraid he's John the Baptist come back to haunt me because I cut John's head off. The only people in the Gospel of Mark who knew who Jesus was in the first half were the devil. Hell usually is a bit ahead of us. They said, we know who you, who you are. You're the Holy One of God. You're the Son of God. And do you know those stories go on for, what was it, three years? And Jesus never discussed this with his disciples to our knowledge. And then he said, boys, we need to get apart. we got some talking to do. And when he got them all by himself, he turned to them and said, who do you think I am? And they said, we think we know. We've had three years to watch you and listen. We think you're the Christ, the Messiah. Now, what did Peter mean when he said you're the Christ, you're the Messiah? Let me mention three things that I think Peter probably meant. One, I know for sure he was saying, you're the one that Israel's been waiting for. What makes a Jew a Jew is he's waiting for the Messiah. So you're the one we've been waiting for. But I think he was saying something more personal. He said, you know, we've been looking too. And you're the one we've been looking for. And we want to follow you. And I think he meant something else. I think he was coming to the place where he was saying, Master, we've seen you face every human need that can be represented. And you've had the answer for every one of them. We believe you're the one that everybody's looking for, whether he knows it or not. We believe you're the Christ. And do you know what I think a Christian is? I think a Christian is a person who's come to the place where he believes that Jesus is the answer to his own need and to the guy next to him too and to everybody else. When we come to the place where we believe that he's the one everybody's looking for and the only hope for anybody ultimately, eternally, then I think that means that we're followers. We're believers. We have believed in him. Now, you're aware that these guys had paid a price for this. They left their families. They left their homes. They left their jobs. 
They left their securities, and for three years they'd wandered around following him. You will remember that moment when some Jesus noticed that there were some who had appeared to be believing, and they were turning back, and Jesus turned to these guys and said, Will you also go away? And they said, Peter said, Where are we going? You're the one that has the words of eternal life. You will remember that these are the guys that Jesus sent out two by two preaching and healing and delivering those who were demonically uh, oppressed. You will remember that they came back and said, Man, we had power over the enemy. And Jesus said, Don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written down in heaven. That's the important thing. And you will remember that the night before he died, he said, I don't call you servants anymore. You're my friends. You're the ones that the Father has given to me. You belong to me, and I belong to the Father, and anything that belongs to me belongs to the Father. Now, these were fellows who loved him, loved him deeply. But it's interesting that that's only half of the Gospel of Mark. Now, I know that the last six chapters tell about the last week, but there are two chapters, two and a half chapters stuck in between. And they're very interesting. Because they're full of stories too, just one story after another. But you know the interesting thing now? The stories after Caesarea Philippi are not about Jesus. The stories are about the disciples. And did you know that in all that six months, there's not a place where a disciple looked good I've read those chapters many times and taken courage. <laughs> There's not a place in those chapters where after they confessed who he was, where one of them looks good. Just let me run through some of it. You will remember that Jesus discloses the secret of his mission. Why he is here, the mystery of his coming, that he's coming to be crucified. And you will remember that uh, Peter turns and rebukes him. It's interesting to have mortal man rebuke God, isn't it? But we're capable, and he rebuked him. And Jesus said, Peter, you don't think the way God thinks. You think the way man thinks. Now, we're going to come back to that line again and again. Because, you see, the problem with half-hearted Christianity is that you don't think right. Because if your heart's not right, your head can't be right. Did you know that? If your heart's devious, you use your head for your own end instead of using it to find the truth. And so he says, you don't think the way God thinks. And then he said, uh, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it, Peter. And that's what, you're, that's, that's what characterizes you. You want to save. You want to get for you. But you're going to have to come to the place where you're turned inside out and you care more about somebody else than you do about Peter. You save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it, for my sake, you'll find it. You will remember that immediately after that was the Mount of Transfiguration experience where Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. And when he got him up on the mountain, you will remember that Elijah and Moses came down and joined the conversation. You know, when I get to heaven, I want to ask Peter about what he felt like when he looked around and suddenly there were two guys that, they weren't, that didn't come up with him. And as he listened to the conversation, he thought, this is unbelievable. This is the guy that rebuked Jezebel, and this is the guy who gave the Ten Commandments. This is the guy who led Israel through the Red Sea. This is Moses. Now, let me say, if the statement, we believe that you're the Christ, was a faith statement in chapter 8, in chapter 9, it's become knowledge. 
because you see here Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus about the crucifixion and the resurrection. They come down from the mountain and there's a mute boy who the disciples have not been able to heal. The father brought him and said, you sent your disciples through all this country recently and they cast out devils, they healed the sick and they preached the gospel and I thought if I can get my boy to your disciples, they'll be able to help him, but they've lost whatever power they had. And Jesus says, how long do I have to put up with you, O short of faith generation? That was said about the best nine people in the world, nine of the best 12 people in the world. You will remember that uh, as they travel along, now headed toward Jerusalem, Jesus begins to talk to them about the cross. Mark says, but they didn't understand. Didn't have the vaguest notion. You will remember that they get to the end of the day and Jesus says, what was that you were talking about with such animation today? Peter says, John, you tell him. John says, uh, Peter, you always speak for everybody you speak. You tell him. Jesus said, neither one of you has to tell me. I know what you were talking about. You see, you think we're going to Jerusalem to establish a kingdom. And what you see is a throne. And what you see is a royal setup. And you want to know what your places are going to be in that royal setup, which portfolios you're going to hold in that new kingdom when we boot the Romans out. But you don't understand my kingdom. It's not that kind of kingdom. You will remember that John said, well, we did one good thing today. And Jesus said, good, what was that? Well, he said, we found a fellow casting out devils in your name and he's not one of us, so we rebuked him. That's beautiful, isn't it? The day before, some father, a father, brought their ne his needy child to the disciples and they couldn't cast the devil out. They'd lost the power. And now they're rebuking a man who's got the power the apostles have now lost. And you will remember then Jesus told him about the cross again. And Mark, Mark makes no comment on this time. You know, my reaction is that Peter probably nudged John. John looked back at him. Peter said, there he goes again. He's got this little litany he needs to say. Don't have the vaguest notion what it means. But if he feels better saying it, let him say it. And so the stories go like that. You will remember when they... Re they wanted to, re they rebuked the man that cast the devil out. You will remember that Jesus said, you don't understand my kingdom unless you become like a little child. You cannot be a member of my kingdom. You'll remember the next day, parents brought their children to Jesus and to the disciples and said, would you get your master to lay his hands on their heads and bless our children? And they said, he doesn't have time for children. You're not going to tell me that Mark didn't know exactly what he was doing when he laid those stories back to back to expose the character of most of us that are Christian believers. Because if you'll read chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10 of Mark, I think you will find an infinitely better picture of 20th century evangelical Christianity than you will in the book of Acts. Now what is it that bothers you see, uh, if you will go through those, those, those passages and look at them carefully, you will find that the thing that uh, is the problem, Jesus put his finger on him when he said, you don't think the way God thinks because you think in terms of self-interest instead of self-sacrifice. Will you hold those two terms? 
because those are the most crucial terms we'll talk about. You see, Peter was thinking about how he would rise in that kingdom, John and James. You remember it was in this section that James and John came after all this other stuff and came to Jesus and said, Master, we have a question to ask. And he said, what's this? They said, would you give us the right hand and the left? And he said, you don't, you really can't hear, can you? And you know, there is something about the benightedness of our hearts, even after we are regenerated, to where we do not see our own crafty self-interest. And we contaminate things with our fingers in the pie, trying to get what we want. I had a friend who told me about visiting a camp meeting, an old camp meeting in the South, when the camp meeting wasn't in session. It had been a great blessing to him. He said when he drove on the grounds to sort of have revived his memories and sense again the presence of God, he says to his shock there were a lot of people on the camp on the campground that uh, he didn't expect. It was a mo motorcycle gang with all their fringes and leather and all the stuff that went along with it. And he uh, walked around a little and he didn't know who they were. He didn't know that the camp meeting people were letting them use it. And there were Christian motorcyclists. So he walked in the cafeteria and there was a big sign up there. It said this, Father, I have a problem. Second line, it's me. Third line, child, I have an answer. Fourth line, it's me. Now the grammar may not be too good, but the theology is tremendous. And do you know it's not the sinner who says that, it's the believer who says that. Did you notice how it began? It began, Father, I have a problem. Now, why does the Gospel of Mark run this way? Let me tell you why I think it runs this way. Do you know I believe that uh, before you become a Christian, the grace of God comes, the Spirit of God begins to come to you and convict you, and you become conscious of your sins. You say, man alive, I shouldn't have done that. And these others, and you know that one of these days you're going to have to stand before God and account for that and the guilt stacks up. And you say, how can I get rid of my sin? Then you become a Christian. And then you find something else. It's not your sins that bother you. It's your sinfulness. And what is that sinfulness? It's that self-interest that wants my way to keep my finger in the pot. You know... Uh, I want to share with you a story tonight that is, I think, an Asbury story, and every Asburyan ought to know it. Some of you that are older here know this, so you bear with me for a few moments while you hear something familiar. But you notice on the back of all these seats in Hughes Auditorium that most of them there's a metal plaque, and it has a name on it. That name is either for the person who gave the money to buy that seat, or the person in whose honor that seat was paid for. Somebody contributed and the name was put on. I remember I was very interested when I found that the first seat on the front row in the middle section here on the back of it, originally, and the plaque got lost, had the name of a Salvation Army officer on it. His name was Samuel Logan Brangle. Now, why was that seat chosen for him? Because he had such a vital part in the life of Asbury College from the 20, 30s and the 20s and back in that period. He had a remarkable influence across the country and across the world. 
I want to tell you about Sam Brangle. Sam Brangle grew up in Indiana, was converted uh, while he was in university, and uh, went to DePaul University. Interestingly enough, originally DePaul was named Asbury, and uh, then they changed the name. But uh, he went there and was converted and decided God wanted him to preach. He was a great, very gifted speaker. His closest friend was also a very gifted speaker, and they spoke together. They did orations together and debates together. The other fellow's name was Beveridge. He became a United States senator from Indiana. Uh, Sam Brangle took a pastorate, served it for a little while, and then he wanted to make a greater contribution, so he wanted more education. There were very few Methodist preachers in this country at that time that had theological training, so he decided to go from Indianapolis to Boston and study at Boston University School of Theology and then uh, establish his career. So when he left his friend Beveridge, Beveridge looked at him and said, Sam, if I was as sure I'm going to be a United States senator as you are that you're going to be a Methodist bishop, I'd be a happy man. Because he knew that that was Sam Brengel's ambition. He was a gifted speaker, and his ambition was to be a bishop. So he went to Boston, and while he was there in the university, he came under the influence of some people who began to expose to him just exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said, if you run your life, you'll lose it. But if you turn your life loose and let me have it to do what I please with, you'll save it. And so God began to deal with him. He began to realize the ambition that motivated him to be a bishop. So he wrestled with that, and he heard somebody witness. He heard William Booth speak, and William Booth of the Salvation Army spoke on holiness of heart. And so Bringle began saying, could I have a holy heart? And when he began thinking about a holy heart, he began to realize how unholy his heart was. And so he said, uh, well, God, if you don't want me to be a bishop, I'll just be a preacher, but I'll be a great orator and a great soul winner. Because you certainly would be pleased for me to be a great soul winner. And the Lord said, wait, what if that's not what I want you to be? And he said, God began to deal with me. I want to read you something that Samuel Brengel said about those moments when God was dealing with me. He said, as I confronted the sin in my own heart, I saw the humility of Jesus in my pride, the meekness of Jesus and my temper the lowliness of Jesus and my ambition, the purity of Jesus and my unclean heart, the faithfulness of Jesus and the deceitfulness of my heart, the unselfishness of Jesus and my selfishness, the trust and faith of Jesus and my doubts and unbelief, the holiness of Jesus and my unholiness. I got my eyes off everybody but Jesus and myself. And I came to loathe myself. Now, you know, when I read that, I thought, I think I understand what Mark is doing. First thing you have to do is find out who Jesus is. And after you found out who Jesus is, you begin to walk with him. And do you know the only way you'll ever find how deep the sin is in your heart is to get very close to Jesus. You get close to me and you don't feel bad at all. Any worse than I feel when I get close to you. 
But you get close to Jesus and you're not comparing you with me or me with you. You're comparing you with him, the Holy One, and you find the self, the ego that's unbroken and uncleansed. And you begin to say, oh God, is there a way that you can deliver me from this? Sam Brangle said, God, can you deliver me from this? And he said, God said, yes, I can, but there's a price attached. You have an ambition to be a great preacher and a great orator. It's all right if I make you stammer and stutter so you'll never speak a clear sentence again. And he said, I knew he had me right at the crux of my ambition. And he said, it came to me in such a thundering way, I thought if I said yes, that the next line I spoke, I'd be stuttering. He said, I wrestled with that and I thought, I don't want to spend my life as a stutterer. And the voice said, do you want to spend your life with me? And he said, suddenly I decided if he wanted me to stutter, if I could have him, it was better to be a stutterer with him than to be oratorical without him. And I surrendered. And he said, the Holy Spirit came, filled my heart. That I never felt so clean in all my life. And a love started in me for Christ that transformed my being. I want to tell you a consequence of this. It was right after this that he got an invitation from Indiana, from a district superintendent, the president of DePaul University, and a Methodist bishop, saying, We have a church in South Bend we'd like for you to take. It is the church of Clarence Studebaker who was the equivalent in those days of Henry Ford. Peter Baker had built the church, multimillionaire. It was one of the most prestigious churches in Methodism. And he had the privilege of stepping out of seminary and going there. And he said, Lord, is that what you want? The Lord said, no. And he said, do you know I was free to write back and say, that's not for me. That's freedom. When everybody else would want it, and you can say, no, that's not for me. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he said, I want you to join the Salvation Army. In those days, the Salvation Army was one of the most despised organizations in the world. So he bought him a ticket, went to London, sat down in front of William Booth. William Booth said, what are you doing here? Well, he said, I've come to join the Salvation Army. Booth said, yeah, I've heard that. We don't want you. He said, what do you mean you don't want? He said, you're dangerous. He said, dangerous? What's dangerous about me? He said, you're part of the educated elite. You'd look down your nose with your university degree at the converted prostitutes and the converted drunks that you're going to have to work with. We don't want you. He said, God led me here. Well, he said, go talk to my son, Ballington. When he got to Ballington, Ballington looked at him and said, what do you want? He said, I've come to join the army. And Ballington said, we don't want you. Finally, he said, God brought me here. Won't you give me a chance? He said, okay. So do you know what they made him? They made him the official boot black for a central corps of the Salvation Army in downtown London and put him in an unfinished basement with a dirt floor and half of it underwater, and he had 18 pairs of boots to shine. 
You know whose boots they were? They were converted drunks and converted prostitutes. They were the Salvation Army's preachers while this brilliant orator was polishing their shoes. He said, you know, sort of the darkness of hell came in on him and said, Sam, you know what God said he'd do with people that buried their talents? And he looked up and said, Lord, am I burying my talents? And he said, then a light came. And the voice said, Sam, I didn't shine their shoes. I washed their feet. And he said, suddenly heaven filled that unfinished basement down there half underwater as the divine Christ came. Now that story is particularly poignant for me because of a personal event in my own life. I was a graduate student at Princeton Theological Seminary and, of course, under Emil Caillé, philosophy professor, the course called The Christian Pattern of Life. Old Dr. Caillé, a man who had been an atheist, God had reached him in a marvelous way. He had one of these Einstein hairdos, you know, like this, and horn-rimmed glasses and all in a French accent. He'd call it gently man. I remember one day he looked down at us and said, gentlemen, do you want to know the reformed, the classical expression of the reformed doctrine of holiness? He said, don't go to the Westminster Confession or the reformers. You can't win but one battle at a time, and the reformers were fighting the battle of justification. He said, if you want to know the classical statement of the reformed doctrine of holiness, go get the Methodist statement on it. And if you don't want to do that, you remember the Methodists were raised up to promote that, the Wesleyans, and when they congealed, God raised up another group. He raised up a group called the Salvation Army, and if you'll go get their doctrinal handbook and look at their statement on entire sanctification, you will find the classical reform statement on personal holiness. Now, he said, if you'd like to know what that means in personal experience, I'd like to read you a story. You know what he did? He sat there in front of 72 Princetonians and read the story of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which Samuel Brangle experienced in Boston when the Spirit came and cleansed his heart. I sat there in the back row, 72 Princetonians in front of me, and I thought, man, I don't know that I can believe what I'm, what I'm hearing. But it was one of the most moving moments of my life. But you know, here's what came to me. He had been profoundly influenced by Samuel Brangle. Now, I want to ask you a question. If you wanted to win an atheist professor who was going to teach in Princeton the Christ, how would you do it? I expect the last place you would ever start is the last place I'd ever start. Would be an unfinished basement, dirt floor, half underwater, with a guy cleaning boots and saying, there's the guy who's going to do it. His ways are not our ways. He looked at Peter and said, Peter, you don't think the way God thinks. You think the way a man thinks. If you're going to be of use to me, you've got to get your thinking straightened out. And for your thinking to be straight, you've got to get the ego in your heart taken care of. You've got to take up your cross and deny yourself. And when you do, you'll think you're losing your life. You know the amazing thing? You'll find it. You'll say, this is what I was made for. Now, the interesting thing is, 
Mark's not the end of the story of the disciples. Because we said, you know, not a one of them looked good. And even those last six chapters, you will remember, three of them slept while Jesus was in agony. And the leader of them three times denied Jesus. Why did he deny Jesus? He was scared. He was protecting his own interests. And then that day of Pentecost came when cloven tongues of fire sat on them and purged their hearts of that self-interest that controlling self-interest purged their self-interest to where they could give themselves for Christ. And the Spirit filled them, and what happened? You remember they were put in prison, put in jail, and then brought in before the bigwig. And the bigwig said, if you open your mouth about this Jesus anymore, we'll have to deal with you and we'll have to kill you. you killed your master, we'll have to kill you. And they looked up and said, we don't know what you have to do, but we know what we've got to do. We've got to be faithful to him. The case is strong, and we need to know it. Every person here needs to know it. But a little girl whose father was Hindu, he became a Christian. Out of his life in India, a whole section of India was influenced. And now there's a great group of Christian churches there. Christian church was growing so fast that the Muslims and the Hindus got together and said, what can we do to stop them? Now, you know, when the Muslims and the Hindus come together, you know something's happened. They're saying, what can we do to stop these Christians? And so they began plotting. And one of them said, well, for goodness sakes, don't persecute them. Because if you persecute them, they'll grow. But now how can that be? It can only be when you come to the place where your life's not what counts. It's faithfulness to Jesus. You want your life to count? You've got to get your hands on it. You've got to get your hands on it. Let him have it totally. Let him have it irreverently. I never learned to swim until I was grown. A friend of mine said, Ken Law, you need to swim, learn to know how to swim. Well, nobody ever taught me. Well, he said, I can teach you. So he took me out. We got down in water, you know, up to about here. Now he said, just lie down in the water. And I said, what? Well, he said, just lie down in the water. I said, I'll drown. Now I said, you can drown. You've got enough blubber on you that you're not going to drown. The right foot going. Well, I said, it's on the bottom. He said, well, pull it up. I said, if I pull it up, I'll drown. No, I said, you're not going to drown. Trust me. Do you know when he said that to me, I remembered when Jesus said to me, will you take your hands off your life? Scared the willies out of me. But who is it that you're afraid of? Are you afraid of Jesus? Makes you ashamed, doesn't it? Made me. But you know, there are a lot of people that are, because it's still recalcitrant, you know, and he can take it out and set you free. That's what this is all about. I want us to sing a great hymn in closing. 583. <laughs> Could I take a moment and tell you just a word about this hymn? 
It was written by one of the greatest Presbyterian preachers, Scottish Presbyterians, in the, pre in the last century, the century before this. He's a man who gave to us, O oh, love that will not let me go. He was practically blind. He was brilliant enough that even as a pastor, he was asked to give the Gifford Lectures, which is the most distinguished intellectual lectureship in the English-speaking world. And George Matheson waited and said, No, my eyes are not good enough for me to do justice to that honor. So he turned down the privilege of becoming one of that elite group of people invited to give the Gifford Lectures. But his intelligence didn't hinder his spirituality. And I want you to notice. Will you look at this hymn? 583. Make me a captive, Lord. And then I shall be what? Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. That's not the way people think you get free, is it? People think you get free by winning. Power. He said, if you capture me, if you overcome me, I'll be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conquer thee. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my hand. It's interesting the verbs are all imperatives. They're prayers. Asking God to do something for him. He knew the need of his own heart, so he says, make me your captive, Lord. That's the only way I'll ever be free. That's true of you, and it's true of me. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conquer I think in life's alarms when by myself I stand. When you stand alone without him, there's no hope. Imprison me within your arms so I can't get out, because if you don't imprison me, I'll run away. But imprison me within your arms. I want to ask you if you know what it means to have him make you captive. Funny thing is, when he captures you, you love him. Then you do his will because you want to, not because you ought to, or you have to. There's a desire. What a change. I want us to stand and sing it together, and I hope you'll pay close attention to the word. If you're not familiar with it, Become familiar with this hymn. Make it a part of your devotional life and your prayer life and make it. Let me pray for you before we... Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed before I pray, I wonder if there's anybody in here who says, you know, this is right where I am and this is right what I need. I want you to pray for me. Would you just lift up your hand? I just want to know if I've been... Okay. Good. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Then we're we're together. Thank God. <laughs> we'll keep pushing on this. And God has has his, his victory for everyone. Father, how we thank you for the privilege of knowing, knowing the truth, that the first thing your son did when he came, he came teaching to give us the truth. So we know the truth about you, the truth about ourselves, the truth about freedom, the truth about salvation through Christ, the truth about what the possibilities are through the cross. Thank you, Lord. Now, Father, we ask you.
to meet each one of these hearts that waits before you. And let something happen in individual lives during this week that for the rest of their lives they'll look back and say, that week, God got all of me. All of me, and I got all of him. And it's a good fit. It's a good fit. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.